11 with me this morning. Daniel chapter 11. God chose a nation to bring peace and goodwill to all men. But what happens next when that nation goes on and on for centuries before uh, uh, being at the center of conflict? God chooses this nation to be great and yet it's in the middle of conflict. An example of that conflict is In 538 B.C., Cyrus had issued a decree that the Jews could return to Jerusalem and uh, reestablish worship in the temple. And two years later, Gabriel comes to Daniel in a vision in chapter 10 that we saw last time to tell him that there is actually a greater spiritual battle that is going on behind the scenes greater than the battle between the Jews and their opponents. And that is the battle between God's angels and Satan's demons. And they're fighting over the souls of Israel and over the existence of Israel. And so we have to ask the question, how is God going to use such a tiny nation to be a blessing to the whole world? How could God possibly follow through on this promise when they are so small and insignificant? And the answer here, uh, the answer for us comes here in chapter 11. And it is that God sees what is going on in Israel. God knows the conflicts that rage. And He is fighting for in Israel and will continue to do so throughout the ages. This morning we're going to look at the historical struggle between Egypt and Syria, specifically as it relates to Israel. And next week we'll look at the rise of the Antichrist. So uh, after studying through this passage, I realized I wasn't going to be able to do it in one sermon. So your sermon schedule is all messed up for the rest of the quarter. Sorry about that. Uh, but Daniel chapter 11, we're going to read verses 2 to 35. We want to see this struggle that's going on between Egypt and Syria, and Israel is right at the center of it. Daniel chapter 11, I'm going to begin reading in verse 2. This is the Word of God. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. And a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants nor according to his own authority which he wielded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. Then the king of the south will grow strong along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His domain will be a great dominion indeed. After some years they will form an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement but she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power. But she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her as well as he who supported her in those times. But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place and he will come against their enemy and enter the fortress of the king of the north and he will deal with them and display great strength. Also their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold he will take into captivity to Egypt. And he, on his part, will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south but will return to his own land. 
his sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through, that he may again wage war up to this very fortress. The king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the latter will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. When the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cause tens of thousands to fall, yet he will not prevail. For the king of the north will again raise a greater multitude than the former. And after an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment. Now in those days, many will rise up against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people will also lift up themselves in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. Then the king of the north will come, cast up a siege ramp, and capture a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. But he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. He will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it, but she will not to take a stand for him and be on his side. Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many, but a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. So he will turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. Then in his place, one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Yet within a few days, he will be shattered, though not in anger nor in battle. In his place, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. After an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them and he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war, but he will not stand. For schemes will be devised against him. Those who eat his choice food will destroy him, and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table, but it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. Then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will, make, he will take action and then return to his own land. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south, but this last time, it will not turn out the way it did before. For ships of Katim will come against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him will rise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with regular sacrifice. And they will set up the, the abomination of desolation. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act, wick, 
act wickedly toward the covenant, but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help, and many will join with them in hypocrisy. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. This is a prophecy that's given to Daniel directly, and it shows that the future of Israel is daunting. There's a great battle going on. Everything that we look at this morning here in verses 2 to 35 has to do with events that have already taken place in our history. But for Daniel, they were all prophecies. It was a prophetic speaking to Daniel, something that he didn't know about, something that was going to be still future for him. And so, this here that we just read, verses 2 to 35, is a detailed prophecy about what has already taken place for us, but has taken place in Israel. And it's so detailed that, that many skeptics, that is, theologically liberal skeptics, believe that it was written after the fact. That it's so detailed, and as we go through, I hope you see that, that this actually follows perfectly, or or I should say it the other way around, history follows this so perfectly that it could only be God that would put something like this together. And the way that we're going to look at this this morning is we need to recognize that there are um, eight conflicts, eight conflicts that we're going to see here in verses 2 to 35. The ninth conflict is going to be seen next week and actually is future still for us. Okay, eight conflicts. Uh, First, the first conflict is between Persia and Greece in verses 2 through 4. The reigning world empire during the time of this prophecy was the Medo-Persian Empire, right? Darius, verse 1, Darius the Mede, and then also King Cyprus, uh, uh, Cyrus, excuse me, who's the king of the, the Persians. So you have those two leaders ruling, and they would do so until 464 BC. The fourth Persian king. Uh, was named Xerxes. And he would invade Greece but be humiliated in defeat. Following that defeat, um, uh, we have the events of the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, if you remember, the king there was Artaxerxes or or just simply Xerxes. And um, and he was a king who uh, was, was uh, the one who dismissed his wife because she wouldn't come before and perform before all the men, and and then he ended up marrying uh, Esther. There would be other Persian kings after Xerxes, but uh, the this uh, messenger from God focuses only on the strongest strongest of them. So that's this conflict that's going on between Persia and Greece. Skip forward in your mind 150 years and turn your attention now to Greece, where you have this great ruler that comes on the scene at the age of 23, and basically in the next 10 years conquers 1.5 million square miles of territory, and that is Alexander the Great. Daniel already knew that Greece was going to be a world empire because of chapter 8, where we saw the shaggy goat. Do you remember? The shaggy goat had two horns, but those horns were broken off, and in its place came one unihorn, and that was Alexander the Great. He rose to power very quickly, and he, he had really unprecedented power up until that time. 
but his fall would be just as quick. Notice verse 4. As soon as he, Alexander the Great, has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out to the four points of the compass. Okay, this, this kingdom is going to, be, uh, going to be taken over basically by his four generals. The problem with Alexander the Great is he did rise to power quickly, but he had no descendants. And so he couldn't carry on his legacy. He probably thought he was going to live a lot longer. And as a result, the four generals of his were his predecessors and they couldn't handle the whole kingdom on their own so they split up into their own various divisions and um, after his death there is this main conflict that we're going to focus on and it's really broken up into seven conflicts in this passage but it's the main conflict between Syria in the northeast and then you have Egypt in the southwest okay so that's what we're going to focus on the rest of the time after Greece Alexander the Great gives up his kingdom or dies. And then these four generals, two of his generals are actually uh, leaders or rulers over one of these divisions. So you have the one, Seleucid, uh, who is the king over the... Uh, Seleucus, excuse me, who is the king over the Syrian kingdom of the north. And then you have uh, Ptolemy the first, who is the king over the, the, uh, the king of the south. So let's see if we can look at that. All right, verse 5, the, first, uh, the second conflict, the first conflict between these two major kingdoms. The prophecy begins with Alexander's generals. Ptolemy I is the Egyptian king of the south. And then uh, Seleucus I is the Syrian king of the north. So when you see in this passage, king of the south, king of the north, think Egypt and Syria. Egypt and Syria. Now, it's not the same king throughout this whole passage. What you'll notice is as he falls away, the next guy comes in. And, and so there's a transition of leadership, but that's who the king of the south and the king of the north are. And then next week we'll look at, at who they are um, in, in those terms. And it, it actually, I think, are two different nations than that, uh, or at least one different nation. All right, so there's the first conflict. And no, what you notice on this map, it's kind of hard to see, but on the, the left here, this is... Egypt, the purple part is all Egypt. And notice Jerusalem is where the star is. So that's, it's actually controlling uh, Jerusalem at this time. And, th- and that's what we need to focus on here in this passage is that there's a struggle that's going to go on between Syria and Egypt, back and forth. And yet, Jerusalem is right here at the center of it. It's going to affect them very significantly. Israel is, is a, a, an important part of what's happening in this history so Seleucus I, the Syrian king of the north, was doing battle during, the, during that time to gain more land. And so he defeats another general and he builds the empire to as large as it would be uh, or as large as it had been, I should say. And when he died, his grandson Antiochus II would reign in this place. So now you have a battle, not so much between the first two, but, but now the second two, the sons of these, Ptolemy II and Antiochus II. Ptolemy II, which is the Egyptian king of the south, was not satisfied with how little control he had. And so he decided to make a treaty with Antiochus II. And to do this, in verse 6, we learn that he offers his daughter, Berenice, as a bride to Antiochus. So the Egyptian princess marries the Syrian king. And what would this do for the Egyptian king? I mean, what would happen to the baby boy? 
a baby boy would be part Egyptian and he would be in line to next rule the Syrian kingdom and eventually this Egyptian king could take over much more land. This would be the grandson of Ptolemy II. He would be in line for the Syrian throne. Really a, um, a crafty little move on the part of Ptolemy II and that's exactly what happened. They had a boy and he was in line to become the next king. But instead of the Egyptians gaining control of Syria, the Syrians got it back because the next king in line was not that son who was born, but it was actually Seleucus II. And that leads us to the fourth conflict in verses 7 to 9. One of his descendants will arise in his place and he will come against their army. Um, Ptolemy II, the Egyptian king, died and in his place, his son would be king. Ptolemy III. And... Um, and so his first act is to uh, let me let me go back here because I missed an important part here. Look look at verse six. Okay, back to Ptolemy versus Antiochus the second. Verse six. Uh, it says, after some years they will form an alliance. So that's the daughter of the king Berenice marrying uh, the the Syrian king, and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. So for a time it will be peaceful, but she will not retain her position. That's Berenice, the, the uh, Egyptian princess. She will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power, but she will be given up along with those who brought her in and, though, and the one who sired her as well as he who supported her in those times. So, not clear to Daniel what's going on here, but from history we know what happened when this actually took place, and that is that Antiochus' first wife, okay, the Syrian king, his first wife was Laodice. His new bride is Berenice, the Egyptian princess. His first wife, Laodice, did not like this new arrangement that he had married an Egyptian princess. And so you know what she decided to do? She decided to murder her. Not only her, but also the king. King, uh, King uh, Antiochus II, and also the son who is next in line for the throne. So, uh, Laodis decides to carry this thing out, and she does. And so, instead of the Egyptians gaining control by this crafty move by Ptolemy II, it kind of backfires on them because of this wicked ex-wife. And so, now that leads us to the next one in line, conflict number four. In the north, in the Syrian king, kingdom, Seleucus II, who was next in line after that son who had died, uh, he now comes to the throne. And Ptolemy II also dies, and in his place comes uh, Ptolemy III. Ptolemy III, you can imagine what his first act would be when he finds out that his sister had been killed. His sister was Baroness. When he finds out the Egyptian princess had been killed by this, this Syrian woman, what was his first act, do you think? Attack Syria. We're going to attack Syria. We're going to capture the city. And, and he does. He told me the, the, the uh, third attacks the city and he kills the queen mother, Laodice. Some years later, Seleucus II would try to avenge his mother's death, but he would be unsuccessful. Verse 9 tells us that. Then the latter, the king of the north, will enter the realm of the king of the south, but he will return to his own land. He's going to be unsuccessful in, in what he does. That leads us to the fifth conflict. And that's Ptolemy the fourth versus the sons of Seleucus the second. Seleucus the second had two sons, Seleucus the third and Antiochus the third. And not very original with names here; it just kind of bounced back and forth. These are actually titles 
Okay, they actually they do have names, but I'm just trying to keep it as simple as possible. Um, so Lucas the third and Antiochus the third, and uh, these two sons would do battle with Egypt for for years, and even take control of Palestine for a time. In fact, I think I have a map here. See how the purple now has moved down? Uh, that's Egypt's portion, Egypt's control, and Syria is now taking up a larger portion of Israel, including Palestine. And that was all as a result of these two sons, Seleucus the second, or yeah, Seleucus the third, and, and Antiochus the third. But uh, over time, Ptolemy the fourth would start to gain ground. Verses eleven and twelve: The king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. So that's talking about Ptolemy the fourth. That's the king of the south at this time. And the latter, the king of the north, will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. So the king of the north is going to build up this strong army and try to attack uh, the Egyptians, but he will fail because Ptolemy the fourth's army is so strong. Um, it leads us to the sixth conflict in verses 14 to 19. Sixth conflict. This is really the fifth with uh, the Egyptians versus Syrians, and that's Ptolemy the fifth versus Antiochus the third, verses fourteen to nineteen. In verse fourteen, we move to the next king of the south, Ptolemy the fifth. He's the son of Ptolemy the fourth, and he would be opposed by many kings. Now these don't relate perfectly. If you were to look at a at a kind of a timeline, you had all the Egyptian kings lined up on a timeline, and all the Syrian kings, they don't line up perfectly like I'm showing you, but I'm just kind of showing you the main conflicts that happened during their reigns. But Ptolemy V would be opposed mainly by Antiochus III. And look at, look at what happens here in verse 14. Now, in those times, many will arise up against the king of the south, that's Ptolemy V at this time, the violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. So now, when you think about it from Daniel's perspective, okay, Daniel's saying, the violent ones among your people. Who is this messenger telling Daniel that these people are? That's his people, Israel, right? The Jews are going to rise up in violence against these opposing nations. And what that means that a number of Jews were actually going to side with the Syrians. They will join in opposition against Egypt in order to try to see this vision fulfilled. See, God had told us what's going to happen and now we know what's going to happen based on His Word and so now we're going to rise up against the Egyptians and yet they will fail because this is not when the vision is going to be finally fulfilled. They're expecting the Messiah to come and the Antichrist to be moved out of the way. Well, Antiochus III, who was the Syrian king of the north at the time, he would attack Egypt, and as Egypt was retreating, they would kill a number of Jews who had been siding with the Syrians. So if you're going to side with the Syrians, the Egyptians would say, well, we're going to kill you too. And that's what happens in verse 15. The Syrians would then uh, gain possession of Palestine and Phoenicia, so this tug-of-war continues. And in order to show who is really in charge, here's how it affects Jerusalem the Syrians would kill a number of Jews who sided with the Egyptians. And then the Syrians, verse 17, would try to seek total power. They, they were not satisfied with the amount of, of progress that they had made. And so as part of, uh, a part of their plan, they decided to make a treaty with Egypt. They forced Egypt into a treaty with Syria. 
And as part of this, Egypt would receive some territories from Syria. And in exchange, Ptolemy IV's daughter, who's known as Cleopatra I, okay, this is not the Cleopatra you're probably thinking of, uh, that's, that would be Cleopatra VII, uh, but, but this is the first Cleopatra, and she was the last pharaoh of Egypt. And, and uh, Antiochus thought that marrying an Egyptian princess would allow him to worry less about Egypt. So, in exchange for helping him get some territories down below, then he, he was to take Cleopatra, this Egyptian princess, as marriage. It sounds like what happened before, right? Well, he thought, the, the Egyptian king thought that would help his advance. And, in fact, that's not what happened at all because she was no friend of Egypt. And so, the, the, the Syrians are, are trying to fight against the Egyptians still. But then what happens in verse 18 is that they have this group. Um, uh, they try to take on the coastlands and there they run into some of these Roman powers and we won't get into all that. Um, all right, conflict number seven is Seleucus IV versus the Jews. So now what we have is the, the battle has been raging here, kind of tug of war between Syria and, and Egypt. But, but now what we have is Syria versus the Jews. Now, there's still some conflict going on between Syria and Egypt, but what we're going to see here is that, that it starts to focus in on the conflict that really affects the Jews. Antiochus third younger brother, Antiochus IV, was a hostage in Rome, so that left Seleucus IV to become the next Syrian king of the north. But Seleucus IV was a wicked man, and there was a heavy tax that the Romans... Uh, forced on the Syrians. And in order for the Syrian king to pay for it, he decides to do this. Look at verse 20. In his place, one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Yet within a few days, he'll be shattered, though not in anger nor in battle. The way that Seleucus IV was going to get that money to pay tribute or to pay taxes to Rome was to actually pillage the Jerusalem temple. And so he heads over to Jerusalem and that's why it's called the jewel of his kingdom there in verse 20. And he tries to steal some of the gold from the temple. You know, people give their offerings and, and uh, obviously the temple was made of lots of gold and so on. And so he tries to do that, but he was unsuccessful and he wasn't able to, to actually win. And l- later he dies, not, by, not in battle, but instead somebody poisoned him. And... Um, and actually it was his own prime minister. The next conflict is Antiochus IV versus the Jews, verses 21 to 35. And this is the man that we've already been introduced to in Daniel chapter 8, Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV. This king of, the, of Syria is called here in our text, I think it's verse 21, um, not in verse 21, but he's called despicable, and we'll, we'll come to that here. But verses uh, 21 to 35 talk about Antiochus IV. The, this king of Syria is the next in line. He was the son of Seleucus IV. And um, all of that history in verses 2 through 20 that we've just looked at just sets the stage for us for the wickedest of enemies against the people of Israel, and that's this Antiochus. He, he is known in chapter 8 as this small horn. 
Remember the one that, that came out of the shaggy goat? There's first four horns. That was the four generals. And then one horn that really had a significant impact. And his rise to power comes with the assassination of the high priest, the Jewish high priest, Onias, in uh, 170 B.C. And he would persecute the Jews for pretty much his entire reign and carry on careless blasphemy uh, that he would raise up against the God of gods. Verse 21, yes, is the place where he's called despicable. In his place a despicable person will arise. That's Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes. And as he's increasing in power, the Egyptian king of the south, Ptolemy VI, attacks the Syrians in order to regain Palestine and Phoenicia. And we see that in verse 22. And although Ptolemy had a large army, he was still defeated and captured by the Syrian king, the wicked Antiochus IV. And since Ptolemy VI had vacated his throne, his younger brother Ptolemy VII would take the throne in his place. And when Ptolemy VI found out, Look at what he does in verse 23. After an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. What this tells us is that Ptolemy the sixth, sixth, the, the current or the former king of Egypt, and the current king of Syria, Antiochus the fourth, would make an alliance. And in exchange for this alliance, Antiochus would would receive a few southern ter- territories, and the, king, the Syrian king would help Ptolemy the sixth to regain his throne down in Egypt. Well, that's exactly what happens. The Syrian king helps him get his throne back from his brother. But you can imagine what happens once Ptolemy the sixth gets his throne back. He wants his territories back too. He wants to go back on his agreement. And that's exactly what happens. And um, Ptolemy would not allow... Uh, the Syrian king to have his way. Well, as they have this battle, Antiochus Antiochus loses in a huge battle in verses 25 to 27. And as he heads back home, he retreats. On his way home, he stops in Palestine and he found there a huge opposition to his rule. And as a result, he would kill, uh, I believe, 80,000 Jews, including women and children, and loot the temple. Okay, so that's why Daniel is recording this for us because this does have significant effect on the history of Israel. Look at verse 27. Uh, verse 28. Then he will return to his land, the Syrian king will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant and he will take action and then return to his own land. That's talking about this great massacre that takes place. This Antiochus the fourth is a wicked man. Well, he's not satisfied with where he's at, and so he attacks Ptolemy again in verses 29 to 35. It, it was not enough to get what he had coming to him, the southern territories that he wanted back, and so he had to have more. And so he attacks Egypt again, verse 29. But this time he's humiliated because these ships of Katim in verse 30 are there to stop him. These ships of Katim are ships of Cyrus or ships of uh, Cyprus, excuse me, uh, which are Roman fleet, uh, a Roman fleet of ships. And the Romans are basically saying, listen, if you're going to attack Egypt, you're going to have something to say to us. And so the Syrians knew how powerful the Romans were, and so they retreated. Antiochus uh, was not too happy, and so he turns his attention, verse 30, against the Holy Covenant again, talking about the Jewish people. 
And so he comes back to the Jewish people and he's pretending that he's coming to collect taxes. And when the people come out to pay the taxes, expecting a peaceful meeting, the Syrian forces slaughter thousands more Jews in addition to the 80,000 that had just been slaughtered. And in order to survive, some of these Jews betrayed their own people and sided with the Syrians. And as a reward, anyone who would give up other Jews, they would be protected by the Syrians. The Syrians would spare their lives. Lives. And as if this massacre was not bad enough, Antiochus IV wanted to make a point in verse 31. He was still flaming mad that the Egyptians had enlisted the Romans and sent him packing back home, forcing the Syrians back. And so Antiochus decided not to take his anger out on the Egyptians or on the Romans, but on the Jews. And so in verse 31, he orders all the Jews that they stop all their religious observances and that anyone who performed any religious observance would be put to death. That is, no circumcision, no possessing a copy of the Scriptures, no sacrifices, no rituals, no feast days, no Sabbath. And to make his point even further, he took his own God, the God Zeus, and he set him up in the Jerusalem temple. That's what you read there in verse 31. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with regular sacrifice and they will set up the abomination of desolation. That's Antiochus IV, the wicked Syrian king against the Jewish people. He sets up his own God in the Jerusalem temple. While many of the Jews in verse 32 feared the threats of death and they obeyed Antiochus IV, they they were willing to defy God in order to spare their lives. But notice verse 32, other Jews were willing to be faithful to God and resist the Syrians. Verse 32, by smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. So some of these Jews will give up. They will betray God and turn in alliance with Syria. But the second part of the verse says, the people who know their God will display strength and take action. These people chose death over defying God. And this persecution would go on for six years and three months while Antiochus was reigning as the king of Syria. The faithful ones were able to help other Jews in verses 33 to 35, but the penalty was death. Many stood up against the Syrians, but as a result, they they died. Not all of them died. Not all the faithful Jews died. In fact, they're the most well-known godly Jews who resisted the new laws of Antiochus IV were the Maccabees. The father, Mattathias Maccabeus, was a priest. And he had three sons, Judas, Jonathan, and Simon. And these four men decided that the best way to restore worship to the Jewish temple would be to do a purging of the wicked Jews. They saw the main problem was not the Syrian opposition, but the betrayal of their own people to that opposition, to that alliance. And, and so, any Jews who had sided with the enemies and against God would now be purged from Jerusalem. And the way that Mattathias was going to do it was just simply to kill them. That if you're going to defy our God and betray our people 
and turn in, in alliance with Syria, then you will be killed by us. And so that's what they did. They tracked down the Jewish traders who had sided with the Syrians and they executed them. And that left the remaining Jews with a choice. You can revolt against Syria and potentially die because you revolted against Syria. Or you can revolt against your own people, the Jews, and then potentially die. So you risk death by revolting against Syria or risk death by revolting against your own people. Which one do you want to do? And the point is that you need to make a choice. Whose side are you on? And as a result, the Jews were purified as a people and united and were able to regain control of the Jerusalem temple on December 14, 164 B.C. An amazing uh, stand against the Syrian people. They, they went back in and took the temple back. And that event of, of purifying the people and regaining the Jerusalem temple is now commemorated with the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah every year because it happened on December 14, 164 B.C. This passage is about the great battle that rages over the nation of Israel. Here we see the tug of war between Egypt and Syria and against other nations, but the one that is significant to Daniel is the tug of war that's happening over and around the nation of Israel. And we have to wonder, how does this fit into God's plan for His people? How can such a seemingly insignificant little nation like Israel someday turn into a kingdom that will never end? I mean, think about it even today. How can a nation like the Israel that exists today become a nation, a kingdom that will have no end? We don't get the answer this morning in our passage, but we will next week. And we learned two primary principles from our study this morning. Number one, our God is sovereign over all the details of life, so we must depend on Him in prayer. Here in this passage, God makes 100, over 100 specific prophecies about ancient Israel and that all of them have been fulfilled down to the minutest detail. Every sing, single thing that you read about this morning has been fulfilled. How can God do that? God can do that because He is sovereign. He is the sovereign ruler over all creation. Remember the, the purpose of the prophecy in chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. He said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now, as soon as He said that to me, I, reached, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Verse 20. Then He said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. The purpose of this prophecy from God's messenger was to encourage Daniel to be faithful in prayer. Yes, the battles are real. And yes, there's an even greater spiritual battle going on. And those are real. But God accomplishes everything that He wants as He hears from the prayers of His people. God is sovereign over every detail of life and so we ought to depend upon Him in prayer. And that leads us to the second principle. Our God can be trusted even when His promised outcome seems impossible. Our God can be trusted even when His promised outcome seems impossible. 
Israel has an eventful history, but it will come to a climax. Just as God has promised, but that time is not now. We need to know that God accomplishes His purposes even when the odds are stacked against Him. I mean, what were the odds hey, if, if they went to Vegas? What were the odds that, that, that Sarah would have a baby at the age of 99? Right? What were the odds that the Messiah would be born of a virgin? What were the odds that Jesus would rise from the dead? What were the odds that the message of Jesus would spread more rapidly after His departure than when He was on earth? What are the odds that Satan would be defeated? What are the odds that Satan will be defeated and that he will be sent to the lake of fire and that this curse will be removed from the earth? What are the odds that God will continue the work that He started in you? You see, God does what seems impossible. As the Lord said to Abraham when Sarah laughed at the idea of having a child, is anything too hard for the Lord? God can be trusted because He controls it all from beginning to end. And Christians, God must be trusted. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that You are in control over every little atom that moves, every uh, particle within the universe. You're in control of the tangible and the intangible. There's nothing outside of Your sovereign care. Nothing outside of Your concern. And Lord, there is a battle raging over the nation of Israel. There is a battle raging over our church. And we trust in You to bring about Your purposes through us. Lord, we come to You acknowledging Your worth and our inability to accomplish good apart from You. And yet, Lord, we see that in Your plan, You use people. You use people to come to You, to to work on Your behalf, like Ezra and Nehemiah who helped with the rebuilding of the temple. Lord, You use people like us to accomplish Your great work, and we're grateful for that. But we are humbled by it as well because we, we need Your help. We need to depend upon You. And Lord, forgive us for for the times in which we are confident in ourselves apart from You and when we don't turn to You. Lord, give us grace to follow and help us to understand Your great power over all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.